And so bang on the door for a while, and he answers the phone. He's shirtless, dripping in sweat. This is August in Miami. The apartment is sweltering hot, and he looks at me with sort of a confused look, and he says, what are you doing here? This is Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Caregiver Storyteller, a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. I'm Chris Doucette, and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories, too. So, are you ready? Here we go. Sure. My name is Max Gomez. I live in Manhattan in New York City. And uh, I guess my relationship is uh, my father uh, had Alzheimer's, and I was um, sort of indirectly, I guess, his, his caregiver, his guardian, and, and a variety of other other things. Also, my um, we called her my grandmother. She was technically, I guess, my great aunt is what she was, also had uh, Alzheimer's. She was my father's aunt, but she was the one who really uh, raised him because his mother died of tuberculosis when they were very, very young in Cuba, uh, or when he was very young in Cuba. Um, So it was his aunt who really raised him. She also lived in Miami, um, and she had Alzheimer's as well. Wow. Did you know your grandmother, great aunt? Personally, would do. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, time? very. You know, very much so. Yeah, and, and yeah. we, when, when, um, as a child, when my brother and I or the, the family would go back to visit in Cuba, we would stay at their home in Cuba until the revolution, until 1958, I guess it was, mm. and um, she was fine then, and then it took some years after the revolution for my father to get her out of Cuba. She ended up coming through a third country. And I, you know what? I should remember. I, I want to say Spain, but I can't swear to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so Cuba to the U.S. by way of Spain. Right. And then, <laughs> um, and then she was fine. She was living. But then little by little, we could tell that Abuela uh, had, you know, was starting uh, to lose it and ended up in a, in a small group home uh, in Miami uh, towards the end. And she lived to be early 90s, 92 or 3, I think. And it about was. what year was that when that happened, and about how old were you at the time when, um, you, when you realized that there was something wrong with your brother? Oh, gosh, you know, that developed over over the years, but it was high school and college, uh, as I recall. I, you know, I'm having a little trouble placing the exact uh, dates on mm-hmm. that because that was a long, a long time ago. <laughs> um, but probably high school, college, um, and when she passed away in her 90s, I was probably in graduate school by then. And did at that time did was there a name for what she was experiencing? Did did your you and your father and your family say go to the doctor and know this is Alzheimer's or this is dementia or is it just um, an old fashioned version of that? I'm you know I'm trying to remember how we referred to it. I think eventually uh, my father, who was a physician, mm-hmm. uh, referred to it as as Alzheimer's. You know, in in Cuba and in Spanish, sometimes uh, you didn't use the words. Uh, For example, uh, one of my aunts uh, had breast cancer um, and ended up dying of breast cancer. Um, And I'm not sure that they ever told her she had cancer. Uh, 
Mm. You know, the C word was if you didn't use the word, it wasn't real. You mm-hmm. know, by actually uttering the word cancer, it made it real. And so uh, I'm not sure that um, that it was ever said, but between my father certainly used used the term Alzheimer's, I think, at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what kind of doctor was he? He was uh, an OBGYN okay. he, uh, in Miami. He did. Uh, he went to medical school in Cuba, in the University of Havana. Mm-hmm. Came to the states to do his internship. He was actually doing his internship in Fall River, Mass. Um, my hometown. Is that right? Yeah, I'm from North Attleboro, huh. Massachusetts. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, uh, the story goes. Um, and I have to believe it, since um, I wasn't there, that I was conceived in Fall River, Mass. Um, and then when they realized that, that my mother was pregnant, and since you know they were essentially on their own in in, uh, in Fall River, Mass, um, they moved back to Havana mm-hmm. because to be with the family. So I would be born in Cuba, which I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we lived. We went back. Um, they moved back. Stayed in Cuba for, I don't know, a year or two, I guess it was, and then moved back to continue his training at this point in Miami. Um, and that's where my younger brother was actually born in what um, in Miami Beach in the what was then a tiny little hospital called Mount Sinai. Now it's a big medical center <laughs> in, in Miami Beach. Um, so, yeah, OBGYN over the years. Uh, he was uh, he was kind of the go-to I think OB in, in Miami supposedly uh, mm-hmm. uh, delivered something like four thousand babies in uh, in Miami wow. over over the years. Eventually retired from obstetrics. That tends to be a young person's game, mm-hmm. being up at all hours of the Absolutely. of the day and night. Yeah. Um, and then practiced gynecology um, after that. Yeah. And what was um, what was what was the first sign that there was something wrong with your dad? How did that come about? You know, I, I suspect it's like many people who, you know, family members, um, they can never put one, you know, finger on any one thing necessarily. Um, it was little things. Um and then, in, in retrospect, looking back, since I, you know, I know uh, now that, of course, that um, depression and Alzheimer's tend to go hand in hand frequently. Um, I knew that he was on and off suffering from depression, um, and being um, from that generation, um, admitting to depression, taking medication, or seeing a therapist, or or anyone. Uh, was a hard thing to do. That would be a, a, an admission of weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's that generation. Um, you know, you just suck it up. You know, you, right. you'll be okay. Right. Um, so, but for some reason, he always listened to me, and so I would get him to see a therapist. I, I, you know, I was living in New York already at the at the time. Um, and so it was wasn't I wasn't there all the time with him, um, and he was taking medication for for a while. But he'd take it for a while, and then he'd sort of drift away, and kind of stop taking it. And you know, so it was kind of an on again, off again thing. Mm-hmm. That wasn't though any any obvious signs of dementia at that point. 
it was really, it was a fair bit later when things sort of started to deteriorate and he started, um, he was living on his own uh, at that point and it was, it wasn't easy. Um, again, little things, um, you know, that we can, we can get into, but I can't, I don't remember back thinking to any one thing that said, oh my God, right. you know, he's, uh, he's definitely and developing he, well ahead. Yeah. And he, and, and so he was living alone in Miami. So at this point he, there was, there was no wife or other, your, uh, your brother wasn't living with him. There was no other family. It's complicated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. Family. Um, my father, um, at the time when we were talking about some of the depression and so forth, was on his third wife. Mm-hmm. Um, there was eventually some infidelity, mm-hmm. and she eventually threw him out. It was, and so he was then, at that point, living on his own. Now, he had, by his uh, second wife, four kids. Um, he had six total, my brother my brother and myself. I'm the oldest of all of them. Uh, and then I had four half-siblings, three half-brothers and a half-sister. Um, all but one of them had were, were not living in Miami. The youngest of them all was, and he— Kind of, he kept an eye on him. He, you know, kept him engaged. Had him over a lot to see some of the grandkids and that mm-hmm. sort of a thing. Um, but at, and, but and he was living on his own at that point. Um, and then at at, at that point, he, uh, when my half brother uh, moved out of uh, moved away from Miami, that was when he really started, I think, to to go downhill. Because then he was really completely on his own. Right. And that right. was when. It, it started to become more obvious that he was uh, losing it. And in, and how did that how did that present itself? Was it odd phone calls or no phone calls? Um, yeah, more no phone calls and odd mm-hmm. phone calls. There wasn't there weren't really any odd phone calls. He we'd go go down to visit uh, in Miami with the kids and and visit, and we'd be. I don't know, staying in a hotel or someplace out in maybe Key Biscayne or someplace, I forget, um, and said, so, you know, just come on over and, and because um, he was driving, mm-hmm. I said, just meet us here, we're going to have dinner or lunch or whatever and see the kids, and he was like, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I can find my way there, I'm a little, uh, I'm not sure where I'm going, and... He'd grown up, you know, he'd lived in Miami for 40, 50 years at this point. Right. He knew his way around. Right. But he was a little hesitant about that, which I thought was a little odd. And that was a very early sign. And now that I mention that, years before, and I'm told that this is not uncommon also, um, I was living in Philadelphia, and he had come up to visit, and he was with me at the at uh, at work, uh, and he um, and I had to stay. And and I said, so just take my car, and you know I can get a ride back with with somebody else or or whatever. And and he took my car. Now, granted, he didn't you know he didn't necessarily know Philadelphia, but I, it was pretty clear sort of how to get from A to B mm-hmm. to our home out in out in the suburbs. Um, and he got lost. 
and was missing for a couple of hours. Mm. Um, and this was really before everybody had cell phones and things, so it wasn't. Right. There was no GPS, right. certainly. Right. So, um, so we couldn't find him, and he had gotten lost. And when we finally showed up, or he called, I forget exactly how we how we finally caught up. And I said, "Well, Dad, where were you?" He says, oh, "I don't know. I just I was." And I said, "Well." You could ask for directions. You have our this, or you know, you know our phone number. Uh, mm-hmm. There are payphones around still. You uh-huh. could go to a payphone, um, and he just didn't really have a good exam. This was years before. I mean, this was before anything else had happened. Right. And I right. guess that you know, I understand now that's sometimes that sort of lack of orientation and not kind of knowing exactly where you are, easily getting sort of lost and confused that way. Never showed any other signs other than. He got lost and he didn't really know what to do or how to come back. So those were perhaps, I guess, some of the earlier, earliest signs looking back on it. At the time, it didn't really necessarily ring any bells. Um, and he eventually, we had him in an, in an apartment. He was living by himself. Um, and every time there'd be something and I'd say, you know, Dad, you really got to be careful about this. Or you have to check into that. Um, and he said, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll, he was good at deflecting. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll look into that, or yeah, I'm going to have to check into that, and of course he never did. But he was working at a clinic, because he had, you know, he'd retired, but his, very much a sense of self-worth was tied up with being a doctor. Um, and that was a real blow to him when you know, he had to close his private practice, and he worked, went to work, I guess, for what was then, they were called HMOs and then mm-hmm. that sort of a thing, an insurance company. He was doing that, and eventually he stopped doing that, or they let him go or something. You know, he was, that was a real blow to his sort of sense of self-worth. Um, and so he ended up, uh, this group that was, ended up being really more of a Medicaid, Medicare, you know, mill Um and they were using his license um, to be able to practice. Oh, I see. Yeah. But they made him the medical director. They gave him a title, mm-hmm. gave him a you know white coat with it, and an office. And so he was um, now a, a he big, had his place back. He right? had his place back. He, yeah. You know, he felt like he was, you know, where he belonged again. Um, and they fawned over him, and they you know they they took care of him, you know, sort of. Until they didn't. And in the end, they took tremendous, tremendous advantage of him. But one of the examples was they, quote-unquote, bought him his condo. And he said, Dad, somebody can't just give you a condo or an apartment, and that's taxable income. You've got, you know, there's taxes that you've got to worry about there. Right. Can you pay those? You know, one because they were they were paying his credit card bills, his phone bill. You know, they were mm-hmm. kind of taking care of all of that. Um, he said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm going to look into it." Of course, he never did. After he passed away, we found my when I started going through all untangling all of this incredible paperwork, found out that he had they had brought him in to the closing put the condo in his name. Now, this was a, I don't know, $450,000 condo in Miami or, or whatever. Um, the saying, you know what the difference is between herpes and a condo in Miami? No. Sometimes you can get rid of herpes. 
Um, <laughs> in other words, you know, you buy a condo, you're stuck. You're never, you're right. never going to get rid of it, and it's and it's almost immediately not worth what you paid for it. So they put very little money down. You could do this in in Miami. They put at most 10%, it might have even been 5%, 10%, let's say, oh I think, put it in his name, and at the same closing, took out a second mortgage in his name. Immediately. So they, immediately. Oh. So they weren't on the hook for anything, and he was on the hook for all of it, which he had no idea. He, had, he didn't realize. He was, right. he was putting papers in front of him, and he's signing papers. Right. So in the end, they, they took advantage of, I mean, tremendous advantage, and there's much more to that story. But... Um, as I was saying, he was driving, and the, the good thing was he the drive was maybe a mile and a half, two miles, straight down one street. Mm-hmm. The end of that street, that's where the clinic was. So he didn't really get lost, but if he tried anything other than that, he would easily right. get lost. Um, but he was okay, and in the end, um, what would happen was, and again, found this out after I got down there and tried to sort out what was going when he really kind of went into crisis, um, he would get up, drive to the clinic. Clinic had shut down. They had scattered like you know roaches when you turn the lights on. Right. Um, I don't know if they milked it for all they could, all the money they could, or maybe the um, the you know Medicare and Medicaid fraud police were were getting too close. But mm-hmm. they, it closed up and shut down. But he would drive there, park, go up. Door would be door would be locked, and he mm-hmm. go, oh, must be Sunday or Saturday. They're closed, they're not open. You get back in the car and go back home. And you do it again the next day. Right. And he didn't realize that the place had had shut down. Ultimately, they had run off, and not only did they leave him on the hook for his condo, they had taken again all of this. I found out well after the fact. This this part I found out after he'd passed away. Because he was technically, they had made him an officer of the company, of the corporation. Mm-hmm. They had taken out a couple of commercial loans to the tune of somewhere I think is around two hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and had him signed to be the personal guarantor uh. of a quarter of a million dollars in loans. And when I talked afterwards to, to friends who are you know attorneys, they said nobody personally guarantees a business loan. Right. If the bank is giving you a business loan, it's based on the business. Right. If it doesn't work, it didn't work. You know. Right. So they came back uh, after the fact. They said, "Oh, we tracked you down. You owe two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You're the personal guarantor." I said, "Yeah, well, pound sand." Yeah. Um, no, no. First of all, he's dead. Yeah. Second of all. There's no money. Third of all, suck it. Yeah. You know, you guys screwed up. Yeah. You 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 made you made a loan. You didn't do your uh, your due diligence to a right. bunch of crooks. Right. And anybody who would have looked and said this guy, his only income is you know a few thousand bucks, a couple of thousand bucks a month from from the corporation, mm-hmm. and the rest was stuff that they were giving him. You know, you screwed up too. Right. Bad. Right. What ultimately? What did anything happen with this? With this fraud? Uh, uh, did anyone? Uh, was anyone held accountable ever? I mean, this is a mystery. So this is. <laughs> you got me hooked. Um, well, there was, boy, it, it gets so complicated. I mean, this is, um, and and f- many caregivers 
learn this a hard way, the ones who don't know it yet really need to pay attention, is that bad financial decisions are often the canary in the, go- in the coal mine. Right. Um, and, and so if, if um, your loved one starts making bad decisions, impulsive decisions, bad investment kinds of things, that can often be uh, an, early, an early warning sign. So this was only one of many things because they would keep putting papers in, in front of them. Um, there are subplots to this, but to, to answer your, your, your question, um, my father, this was one of the things that, that got it um, when I realized that everything had really, it was time to, to step in and I had to take care of him. And you were still living in New York at the time. I was in New York. Yeah. He's, still in, he's still in Miami. Uh, well, two things happened. Let me, let me back up a little bit. One of the things that happened was um, I get a call from the manager of the very large condominium complex that he was in. It was a high-rise, mm-hmm. a couple of high-rise buildings. Um, and <laughs> this is, this is a, a sign of what my father is. He had actually delivered her. <laughs> as a baby 30-something years earlier. He had actually delivered. So she knew him, Right. kind of kept an eye on him, kind of right. came, and, and she called me. I get this phone call, and she says, you know, your dad is several months behind in arrears on his condo fees. Mm-hmm. I said, well, well, that's weird because it's, you know, the condo fees were being paid by this clinic, the people from the clinic. And she says, well, they haven't paid in a few months, and he's behind. And she said, and listen, quite frankly, I don't know that I trust those people. Mm. She already – so she was looking out for him and right. giving me the heads up. So that's when I, st- I started looking into things, and I, and I went down there. I was going to go down there. Um, and so I called him, and this was not uncommon. I'd call, and he wouldn't answer or he, would, you know, he wouldn't pick up the phone or whatever. And now I'm calling him because I'm coming down to figure out what's going on. And one day, two days, three days, and he's not picking up the phone. Hmm. Not his cell phone, not his home phone. I said, well, you know, and, my, and there's nobody else in Miami. And so I'm thinking, well, the only thing I can do is I've just got to get on an airplane and fly down there. Right. So I fly down there, take a cab from, from the airport over to his apartment, not knowing if I'm going to find him dead or what. It's not you know right nothing bang on the door for a while and he answers the phone he's shirtless dripping in sweat this is august in miami the apartment is sweltering hot and he looks at me with sort of a confused look and he says what are you doing here i said well if you'd answer the damn phone you know (laughs) i wouldn't have to you know flown down here to find out whether you're alive or dead and he goes oh yeah there must be something wrong with my phone. I, I, I'm going to have to look into that. Uh, uh, there was nothing wrong with this phone. Right. He just he turned it off or he wasn't answering it. And who knows what. So we start, I'll, I'll tell you more about all the mess that we started unraveling there, but found out that, in fact, his, his condo fees hadn't been paid for. Um, but we went off and then um, I sorted. We had to sort out bank stuff and... Um, there was some he had been scammed out of almost all of his money mm-hmm. uh, by what the cops called a sweetheart scam mm-hmm. you know a young girlfriend who uh, you know paid attention to him and you know and he um, mm-hmm. 
and said uh, she was Cuban, and he said, said, oh, I have family back in Cuba. They need money, Mm -hmm. Mm da-da-da. And so I ended up being, I think, somewhere around $30,000, which is all he he didn't have any money. Right. Um, In, like, bank checks or whatever, and he wrote to her, and she cashed and, you know, Mm -hmm. also disappeared. We reported that to the police. They came, and they interviewed him, and he said, well, yeah, I wrote out those checks. Um, she was a, a woman who needed help, and I'm a gentleman, and I helped her. Mm-hmm. And, the, and so he wouldn't, you know, there was no way to prosecute that. Right. Because he said that, um, and the, uh, and the Miami-Dade police said, it's really common. You know, they're, they're embarrassed by having been scammed. Right. And so they, they, they won't say anything. So I was getting back to, oh, it's very hot in there. And I said, Dad, it's, you know, it's like sweltering in here. He says, yeah, this must be something wrong with the air conditioning or whatever. I'm going to have to look into that mm-hmm. again. And I looked over, and he had been messing with the thermostat and put it on heat oh instead of air conditioning. He had air conditioning. Yeah. Put it on heat in August in Miami. So we fixed that, sorted a whole bunch of stuff out, and went back uh, to New York to try to f- start getting things sorted out to figure out what we're going to do with that. And I get a call from the FBI. The FBI Special Agent Waterman calls me. He's the head of the Medicaid and Medicare fraud office in for the FBI mm-hmm. in South Florida, which apparently was, I found out later, rampant with Medicare and Medicaid fraud. Right. And he says, someone using using your father's code number or whatever it is um, that allowed him to charge and prescribe things through Medicaid and Medicare had apparently fraudulently charged things to Medicare and Medicaid to the tune of something like $2 million. Mm. And he said, "My his agent is at your father's apartment now interviewing him. And I told him the story. I said, oh, this is, you know, this is the clinic, this is that. So I called uh, uh, my father's number, the, you know, he answers. Uh, I, I talked to the agent. And it, it became immediately, it, it had become very quickly clear to him that my father was in no way um, able to run that kind of a scam. Right. And it was clear that he was not benefiting financially. He was living on his, you know, by himself and with very little, you know, some sparse furniture and something in, right. in this apartment. So um, he said, yeah, you know, your father was telling me, showing me pictures of you graduating from high school and uh-huh. your, you know, your wedding picture, your old wedding pictures and things like that. He's, he'd been talking to him and, you know, and they were having just a nice chat uh-huh. and, and, and whatever. And he realized that he, he had been scammed as well. Mm-hmm. And then as he's getting ready to leave, he said, oh, and listen, I, maybe I shouldn't say anything and it's not really my business, but it's really hot in your father's apartment. Oh, no. And I said, Oh, will you just check the air of the thermostat again? He's probably got it on heat, and you know he had it on on heat. So it became it was very clear at that point that he was not able to live by himself. But it, you know there was a lot of stuff to sort out. We started right. out by getting right. a a nice older woman 
who would come in two, three times a week to make sure the laundry was done, to make sure that, you know, he had some food that he was eating, that the sort of. The heat was off. The heat was <laughs> off, yeah, exactly. That you know, he had at least, you know, at least at least the heat was off and maybe not even the air conditioning on. Um Boy, he was he was resist. I don't want to, I don't need anybody coming here to take right. care of me, whatever. Right. But we we made it, and she was very patient with him because he was with her. He would be cranky, not with me. This is how I found out about the sweetheart scam. Mm-hmm. That is, I said, "Where's your? Let me see your money. You know, where's your checkbook?" Went to the bank that had been cleaned out. Right, and and he only shared this information with you just because because you had a good relationship. He trusted you. Right. Yeah, because some yeah. people are very resistant to sharing anything. Yeah, with anyone. no, he was. Um, I think with all of his kids, he was he was pretty good, but they w- he wouldn't necessarily listen to them. Right, and you know he would listen to me again. Not sure exactly why. Maybe because I was his namesake. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, At this point, you realize he can't live on his own. What is your emotional uh, condition at this point? You know, it hadn't become an emotional thing at that point yet. I, I was still in problem-solving mode. Right, because you're a doctor, right? Yeah. So you're about Yeah, so this problem. is, you know, uh, I got to figure this out. How do we fix it or whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't really had that much of an opportunity to reflect. Some maybe, but, but I was in, what do I do to sort all this crap out? Mm. Uh, we had gone, like I said, gone to the bank and, you know, th- th- that was cleared out. He wasn't getting, you know, his. He was behind in his condo fees, um, the mortgage payments on the condo. They weren't being made. I mean, right. you know, this thing was a mess. And then I said to him, "Where's your social security money?" And he said, "I don't know. It's in. It was in direct deposit. And it's going in there." Well, this is the only lucky thing that happened to him this whole time, and the only good thing was he. Had, we had set up direct deposit for Social Security years before mm-hmm. into an account at, at this bank. And there was another bank, there was a bank there that had, you know, seven day a week or something, uh, you know, hours or whatever. And so he would go to this bank and it became kind of a social thing for him. He'd go and he'd schmooze with the people there and he'd talk to them or whatever. And he opened an account there. That's where the money that he was scammed out of, that's where the clinic was putting what you know what little money they were paying him went into that account mm-hmm. he had completely forgotten about the other account his social, the security, social security where the mm-hmm. so there was some money from social security that was in this other account that we didn't know anything about right that's the only thing that was lucky because he had enough money so that i could get him move him to new york mm-hmm. put him on private pay in an assisted living facility long enough so he could qualify for residency and Medicaid Mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we'd have really been screwed. Right. So, but then going to Social Security, we had to go to Social Security to sort, I had to go to the bank to, so I could be a co-signer on these things and Mm -hmm. close one account and and open it up as a different account so that I could control it Mm -hmm. and see the, you know, see the statements every month. Going to Social Security, um, that's a um, that's a lovely experience. If you've never had it, you should try it sometime, <laughs> or you should just go have a colonoscopy instead because that's that's actually more fun. Um, 
you know, I went to try to sort out and explain it to, you know, the, whoever the agent was. And I had to come back and bring him back and, and go through all of this. And, um, you know, it's always not clear to me how they allow people who are clearly uh, non-compass mentis, uh, you know, not all there, mm-hmm. to sign things and, and make some of the decisions on their own. Got all of that sorted out. Then the question was, how do I get him to sort of agree to leave Miami where he's lived for half a century and come to New York? And I'm still a little surprised that I was able to, he, you know, I said, you know, why don't we come on up and, you know, I want you to come up here, be closer to the grandkids, you know, you'll be mm-hmm. close to me. I can come and see you. You're by yourself down here. And he goes, eh, maybe it is time for me to, and he kind of, sort of went along with it. Uh, I had gotten to know some people, and we went to see, went to the Lot Residence, uh, an assisted living facility, terrific, really wonderful people there. Mm-hmm. And so we went to for a an intake interview, an evaluation, because, mm-hmm. you know, they have to uh, make sure that he is at the appropriate care level for an assisted living facility as opposed to a nursing home or something right, like that. Right. So we go and, you know, the entire, there's the nursing director and the president and the social worker and the admissions person, there's about five or six people there, and, you know, they're asking and talking, and I'm sitting there and listening. And at some point, my father had this sort of a little odd sense of humor sometimes, and he says... Maybe they ask him, is there anything else, you know, we need to know about you? And he says, well, yeah, there is one more thing that you should uh, uh, need to know about me. And he says, I have an addiction. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, there it goes. (laughs) He just screwed the pooch. Um, You know, he's not getting in here. But I'm thinking, uh, I kind of have an idea as to where he's going with us because he had sort of used the same line on me once before. And he... uh, and I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop because I can see the faces on, on and their, their faces going. Because it's not unusual for physicians to have become addicted right. to, uh, you know, painkillers and so forth. Right. And that was not him at all. He said, yes, I'm addicted to chocolate milkshakes, was his <laughs> line. And I could see their faces go, Phew. But he'd used this line before. Yeah. And it's funny. He always did. But whenever I bring him a chocolate milkshake when he was living there, he'd yeah. take a little sip of it and then, you know, and put it down and he'd never have it again. But he claimed that he was addicted to chocolate milkshake. So we got him okay. and, you know, I brought him up, packed up a big suitcase. My other uh, half-brothers had moved back and they sold off and packed up all the other stuff and got rid of everything. Mm-hmm. But he didn't really have much. Packed up a couple of big suitcases and said, you know, come on up and... And let's see if you like living up here in this place. And he did. Yeah. He came up. He said, but I have all this stuff still back in my head. I said, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll move it up later. Let's just see if you have, if you like this place. And, of course, he never remembered that. Right, right. And, and moved him up. Then there were about five years where, when he lived, five or six years when he lived in New York and, and the end deteriorated physically. And it was after he passed away that I found out about all the other stuff that I hadn't yet found out about. I thought when I moved him up, we had some Social Security money. He was still getting some of that, mm-hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. And Medicaid covered the, the stuff that Social Security didn't cover. Um, he lived up there. He was okay. They were taking good care of him. He would sometimes get cranky with the aides at, the, at, at there, and I'd get a phone call saying your dad refuses to, you know, 
he threw the aid out of his out of his apartment uh-huh. Uh-huh. or whatever, you know. And I'd I said, okay, I'll take care of it. And I'd come up and I would have to sh- shave him sometimes. I would have to coax him to to take a shower, mm-hmm. to bathe, to change his clothes. He said, well, I changed my clothes this morning. I said, Dad, I can see the tuna fish you had for lunch three days ago, and you yeah. haven't changed your clothes. Yeah. Um, for some reason, bathing was something he didn't like. He didn't want to take a shower. I would shave him. I would, you know, encourage him, have push him into the shower to take mm-hmm. a shower. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the oddest things for me was <clears throat> when I was growing up and as an adult, uh, my father was meticulous about his personal hygiene, mm-hmm. grooming. Mm-hmm. He was always, he was a fashion plate, I mean, not, but he was, a, you know, a suit. He always had, uh, you know, a, a white hanky in his pocket with cologne on it. He had pocket mm-hmm. squares. He had mm-hmm. beautiful ties, always dressed in nines. Um, he would, even back then, have uh, a manicure before metrosexual became you know, <laughs> a, a thing. He it's would have manicures, that sort of a thing. And he, but as he... Um, slid deeper into his Alzheimer's, um, he, his personal hygiene and taking care of himself and his mm-hmm. clothing, mm-hmm. just he just wouldn't do it. And so it was completely the opposite. And he'd already, I think he at one level knew that he had some Alzheimer's. I had already had him evaluated in a couple of places through uh, you know, some of the research facilities at, at NYU and so forth, and the Alzheimer's facilities, research facilities, and they said, look, it, it, based on his neurocognitive com- testing and some scans that they had done and so mm-hmm. forth, they said, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very high probability, and, and that's what he has. Um, he may have used the words Alzheimer's once or twice, mm-hmm. a couple mm-hmm. of times, but he, um, but he never... Um, he would just say, "Yeah, you know, my my memory's just not what it used to be." Right, and that's kind of all he would. Right, uh, he would say. What was he like growing up? He was, I want to say, surprisingly. I don't. I don't know why I would say surprisingly patient and soft-spoken and gentle. Although my brother says that he once or twice saw his temper. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really recall ever seeing him lose his temper. He and my mother got divorced when, when my brother and I were very young, mm-hmm. four or five years old or something like that. And I have, and you know, and back then it was the classic every other weekend and like one afternoon a week that we would be with him. Oh, I see. Yeah. My mother had custody, yep. and you know it was that sort of a thing. It was never any issue, really. I mean, we would spend as much time as we wanted, but on every other weekend, we'd go stay with him and his second wife, mm-hmm. and we'd be asleep, and he would always wake us up. He would wake me up by just sort of gently rubbing the side of my face until I woke up. Uh-huh. I always found that annoying. <laughs> I didn't want it. I didn't like being awakened that way. It was like and, until it bothered. You know, he'd rub the side of my face uh-huh. enough until I until I would wake up, and, and I wouldn't. I never told him, "Don't do that, Dad." Uh-huh. Um, and so I never did that with my kids because I thought I always thought it was annoying. Right. Um, 
You know, there was just, I, I mean, I, you know, we, we would, he would take us to what was then called, in Miami it was called Royal Castle, not White Castle. Mm-hmm. It was Royal Castle, but it was the same thing, little, you know, little sliders, burgers yeah. and things like that. That's, that was a big deal. We'd go and have a frosted mug of birch beer uh-huh. and, you know, and sliders uh, at the, uh, they weren't called, we didn't call them sliders then. Uh, my brother and I would, would do that uh, with him. You know, he little by little would would get a little bit harder to deal with. Again, not not with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember we had a we would uh, once in a while would take a this uh, assisted living facility is right across the street from uh, the very north end of Central Park, and we we had a couple of we'd take a couple of walks through the gardens and and around mm-hmm. a little lake up there. Um, and uh, there was one time it was a friend of a friend who came along. Uh, she was a professional photographer and took some really wonderful mm-hmm. uh, photographs of just the two of us just walking uh, together and, and talking. We talked about his sense of humor. And it was one time he told me this joke many, many years ago, and I repeated it back to him. Um, one time I said, Dad, do you know, what the, you know what the definition of a gynecologist is? He goes, no, what? I said, it's a guy who goes around spreading old wives' tales. And he laughed like a little <laughs> kid because he had no memory of having told me the joke at all. Uh-huh. And he just giggled and laughed like, uh-huh. you know, this was the first time he'd ever heard the funniest joke in, uh-huh. in the world. So we had those moments. There was one moment that I really remember. In fact, I probably have some, I think I have some on my cell phone, some pictures of it still. Uh, there was a Cuban restaurant up... Um, on 3rd Avenue and 111th Street, Amor de Cubano, um, and it was Father's Day. And mm-hmm. so my kids, two, his two grandkids, uh, and I would uh, took them out for, for lunch mm-hmm. uh, there on Father's Day. And they always had live music there, and they, were, and they had live music that day. And we're sitting there, and he's having a very quiet, you know, we're having lunch, and he's quiet, and the music starts, and I kind of look over to him, and he's kind of like doing a little you know, samba in, in, in uh-huh. his seat, and he's kind of dancing around. And it was the most I'd seen, you know, sort of engaged like that. One of the waitresses saw him, came over, grabbed him by the hand, and picked him up, and they started dancing there in the restaurant. <laughs> and they were dancing together. And Amazing. The, the folks at the, uh, at the assisted living f- uh, home said that, Every once in a while, they would have dances or play music or whatever, right, and then right. that he would get up and, you know, yeah. uh, he wouldn't necessarily do it on his own. But if somebody, you know, a, a, a nice lady, nice looking yeah. young lady, would uh, yeah. take him by the hand, he'd get up and and he would uh, and he would dance. So he would have, so he, uh, you know, it's uh, as we all know, music makes that kind of connection with Alzheimer's patients, and mm-hmm. particularly right. Right. in this case, Latin music, you know, connected to. Mm-hmm. The music of of his youth, and so mm-hmm. he would get up and mm-hmm. move his hips a little bit and move around, and um, but it's he never complained about, and he was always in pain for something, right? And he and he would never uh, complain. But then he got he got sicker. He'd be in and out of the hospital a couple of times. Um, there was one time where he ate or. Bit or ate part of a bar of soap, mm-hmm. and he had this massive allergic reaction. His face and his lips swelled up, and the caregiver, the the folks at the, the AIDS thought it's because it looked like fruit. 
mm. you know, had had a, mm. a fruity smell. Yeah, and yeah. had a and he had, and they called me and said, you know, your father's in the emergency room. He's there. Another time he had um, urinary retention from I guess a prostate problem or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, the doctor at the at the home said, you know, not only your abdomen feels big or whatever, I, I don't like this. I think we need to send you over to the hospital to get evaluated. You and I. If we had maybe 500 cc's of urine in our bladders, we'd be ready to burst. Right. That's a lot of urine. Right. They took him there and they they scanned him with you know ultrasound or whatever. He had something like two or two and a half liters of urine in oh his my bladder. Goodness. And they, you know, they catheterized him and drained him, and it was fine. Although he never, his bladder never completely recovered. Um, and he said, "Boy, you must feel much better." He said, "Well, I don't know. I didn't feel that bad before." And I think that's also part of the the, the disease in Alzheimer's is that the, their sensory processing is off, mm-hmm. and so he was not not feeling pain or, or whatever. But right. ultimately, little by little, started forgetting more got sicker they would send him to rehab over at a nursing home he'd do some and he ended up in the nursing home and then he really he spent about the last six months really physically deteriorating before uh, before he passed away I was with him uh, that night mm-hmm. uh, when he mm-hmm. when he passed away um, but he was never really in you know he's not in a lot of Pain. He mm-hmm. wasn't in discomfort. He never became angry, mm-hmm. as, as many Alzheimer's patients do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's always sort of a gentle soul, and um, he stayed that way really, really to the end. And and that, I guess, that was a gift. If and when you meet someone who is a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's, what's your first advice? Well, there are two things. Um, one is the the mechanics. The other is ask for help Mm. it's okay to ask for help too many caregivers take it upon themselves as this is their cross to bear this is my loved one my husband my wife um, my father and you know my mother this is what i'm supposed to be doing and they will take it upon themselves almost to the exclusion of anybody or any other help to do it themselves this is what I owe them. No one can do it all themselves when it comes to Alzheimer's. It's just too overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And there is help. This is what caring kind is all about, obviously. Mm-hmm. There is help. There's respite. There, there are things that you can do. It's okay to ask for help. That, that doesn't make you a bad person. doesn't mean you love your loved one any less, um, that you're not caring for them. So that's really important. The other thing that's really important is, and you try to do this before they get too far down the line, get all the legal affairs in order. Mm-hmm. That's just so important. The finances, powers of attorney, wills, all of these things, because take it from me, because it happened to my mother for other reasons, not for Alzheimer's, and my father. If you don't have those ducks in a row, it is a nightmare after the fact mm-hmm. to try to sort it all out. So to the extent that you can get it done and that they will cooperate with you ahead of time, get all of the legal, talk to an elder care attorney mm-hmm. and get, and there's, and again, there's help for that. 
get those things sorted out. It makes all the difference in the world because otherwise the nightmare will continue even after they're gone. Mm. Dr. Max Gomez, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. It's my pleasure. I, I just hope that it'll help somebody else. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org slash podcast. Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.